working for one of the most iconic visionaries of our time. As Steve Jobs' executive assistant at Apple, high expectations and demands in a fast-paced, high-stress environment was par for the course. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome back to the Inspired Leadership Podcast. My name is Tyler Bailey, and I'm here with Susan Power. We want to say thank you so much for being listeners, for helping the community here, for giving us your suggestions, reaching out, and being guests on our podcast. Thank you so much. By the way, if you like this content, give it a like. It helps more people hear it, more people see it. Thank you. All right, let's hop into our guest. Our guest, she is a CEO, an executive wellness coach and thought leader, Naz Beheshti. See, Naz Beheshti's first job was as Steve Jobs, executive assistant at Apple. And he quickly became her first and most influential mentor. Not only did he teach her how to live and lead in alignment with her head and heart, he also taught her through his words and example that well-being is the ultimate wealth. Nas is the author of Pause, Breathe, Choose, Become the CEO of Your Well-Being. She is an executive wellness coach, speaker, Forbes contributor, and CEO and founder of Prana Nas. This is a company that provides corporate wellness solutions for improving employee engagement and well-being, company culture, and business outcomes. You're going to love this interview. Please help me welcome Naz Beheshti. Welcome to the Inspired Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, Tyler and I are both very excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up in the role of a corporate wellness coach working with CEOs to improve leadership effectiveness and employee well-being? Well, it all started when the seed was planted in my first job out of college, working for one of the most iconic visionaries of our time. As Steve Jobs' executive assistant at Apple, high expectations and demands in a fast-paced, high-stress environment was par for the course. And the day I started at Apple was the day Steve dropped his eye for interim CEO title and officially became the Apple's CEO again. And at the same time, though, I dropped my own eye myself. You know, I was caught up in Steve's world and really just dismissed my own. Day after day, I, I made sure he had the strict vegetarian meals that were essential to his daily routine. While attending faithfully to his well-being, I ignored my own. I would snack on Hershey's Kisses and remain wired and stressed long after the workday was over. And I always remember that one day I um, surprised Steve by including an oatmeal raisin cookie uh, with his meal, thinking it was a healthy dessert choice. While cleaning up later, I found that whole cookie in his trash can. And so in that moment, I realized that my version of healthy was Steve's garbage, quite literally. That's a, that's really fun. I love that part because it makes me think of uh, how people are all like, the golden rule is the golden rule. But when it comes down to different perspectives, it really changes up. It's like, I, what I think is healthy is not what they think. What I would do unto others is I want done unto me. Well, not when <laughs> you start clashing different cultures, business cultures. I love it. 
Right. I mean, right. it's wellness, well-being, it's a spectrum, right? So you may think you're, you know, healthy or making good choices, but compared to someone else like Steve, not so much. And so, you know, although I had began to question my habits as a result of that, I didn't fundamentally transform my lifestyle right away, yet that seed had been planted. And I could see how my own habits held me back from being the best version of myself. At the same time, I could see how Steve's mindfulness and self-care made his intense level of focus and energy sustainable, which was really key. And this was very helpful in all of my career moving forward. Because after Apple, I worked at a tech startup where I wore many hats simultaneously, followed by sales roles at Yahoo, which was the Google of its time, and AstraZeneca. They were all fun and exciting at the beginning until a staleness crept in and I started to wear out my snooze button and dragging myself out of bed every morning. There was just something missing. It was like a sense of passion and purpose and I didn't know what to do. I just was so unfulfilled. So a few friends of mine um, who were also void of fulfillment at the time decided to start a nonprofit school in Haiti on the side while we were trying to figure out things. So while I was trying to figure out my life, I wanted to make meaningful impact in the lives of the poorest of the poor children through food, education, and medication. So I started my nonprofit Rise to Shine. In parallel, while working at AstraZeneca, visiting doctors day in and day out, I discovered a wellness gap. Uh, not only were people stressed at work, lacking the tools and strategies to manage stress and build resilience, but when they would visit their doctor, their doctor didn't have the time to get to the root of their problem. And so there was a wellness gap in the workplace and society at large. And since most of our time is spent at work, I saw an opportunity to bridge that wellness gap by providing workplace wellness programs, benefiting both the employees and the organizations. Because when employees feel better, businesses do better. It's, it's essentially a win-win situation. And that is when I decided to go back to school to get additional training so that I could start a corporate wellness company, coaching leaders uh, to fulfill their highest business, personal and social potential, as well as creating and implementing custom programs to address the needs and goals of employees and employers, which is how Prananaz was born. Wow, you're never too late to go back to school. Never. Like I'm I'm a student of life. I'm always in school. <laughs> <laughs> student of life, yeah. We we ask a question to everyone that comes on the show, and we've had the most interesting answers come out. We've had really concise ones, we've had really long we've had stories, examples. The question is, you know, what does inspired leadership mean to you? Well, I love that. And I love the name of your podcast. So what a great question. And I wish I were in your shoes to hear all the different answers, because I'd be so curious to know, based on people's experiences, what it means to them. For me, it really means an inspired leader is really fueled by passion and purpose. I, I got to see this firsthand with Steve Jobs. And then I personally experienced this as I have turned my passion and purpose into my profession. And inspired leadership is when, in my experience and what I practice, is when is when your head and heart are aligned. They're in complete alignment. And you are energized, engage, and motivate people to fulfill their highest potential. 
That's, that's a way that no one has really described it as where the head and heart are aligned. And it makes a lot of sense. I love that. As far as product productivity trap, you talk about in your book does, um, I think of executives and I do a lot of coaching work and people always bring up time management and they don't have time for exercise and, and wellness. Can you tell us a little bit about what the productivity trap is and what is your approach to helping an individual that might be facing burnout or, or stuck in the productivity trap? Yeah, the productivity trap is a constant chasing of productivity through more hours and more efficient, like you said, time management. However, working harder is not the answer. Working smarter is. It's not about the number of hours we put in, but rather the quality of our work. So we should be managing our energy more than our time because time is a limited resource, but our energy is renewable. So I suggest to determine what time of day you have the most energy and do the most challenging or least desirable tasks at that time to avoid procrastination and to be mindful mm -hmm. of the activities, the people, the foods that give you the most energy and incorporate more of that into your life to literally fuel you. And you will see that you'll be more energized and engaged rather than depleted and burnt out. So for example, if you're working long hours to meet all the demands of your work at the expense of sacrificing quality sleep, not exercising or nourishing yourself properly or spending time with loved ones, then you've fallen into a productivity trap. This is the point where the obsession with productivity becomes destructive. And this destruction is not only harmful to your health, but to your work. And it becomes counterproductive as you battle exhaustion and bad choices. So I would suggest to prioritize your well-being. And, and since that's very broad, I suggest to determine the area that is lacking most. Is it your sleep, exercise, a mindfulness practice, like your nutrition, whatever it is, or your time with family and loved ones, just start in one area and build from there and block that time in your calendar for your self-care and treat it as a non-negotiable because you are as important, if not way more than anything in your calendar. So block that time out. You've had a lot of mentors, it sounds. And you've had a lot of mentors and life-shaping experiences over the years that you share in your book, Pause, Breathe, and Choose. What was the number one lesson you took away from working with Steve Jobs? The number one lesson that I took away working with Steve was that he has inspired me and ultimately led me to my passion, purpose, and profession. And that is that well-being drives success. In other words, our greatest wealth is our well-being. And practicing a holistic approach to well-being is fundamental for sustain, sustained success in all areas of your life. So, this means having a fulfilling career that you're passionate about, healthy relationships, proper sleep and nutrition, regular physical activity and mindfulness practice and a purposeful life, which I can say with much gratitude is what I practice and teach. And I saw that from Steve Jobs. That's what he did too. So stop shooting yourself because there's all these should, should mindset. And it, it's all about 
your intention and how much you really want something. Because if you really want something, then you commit to it. And it's not a should, but it's a must. It's like a non-negotiable. So I, I really try to decipher what, how they value it and how they prioritize it. Because things I work with very high caliber, high, you know, um, high level executives who, you know, when they want something, they get it done and they, they're high achievers. So is it, it's, it kind of boils down to how bad do they want it? They don't really want it that bad if they're making excuses for it. Right. Cause do you make excuses for things you really want? Probably not. Like it's about the value you put on it. So what I do is try to find one thing, only one thing that they want to accomplish, whether it's, you know, sleep, exercise, whatever it is, and just start with that one thing and start super small because they're very, very busy. And I'm not going to say, let's kind of do a whole makeover of your life and adopt a whole, like adopt everything in my book right now. No, don't do that. <laughs> just start small, take one thing and create a small, tiny habit. And once you start feeling and experiencing the benefits of that, then that's going to develop intrinsic motivation for them to build from there. Um, I remember seeing a TED talk that was, uh, it was like uh, one thing, or it was about doing things for 30 days, mm -hmm. right? And what you could do in 30 days. And this guy tried to take on all these different habits. I forget the, the TED talk was, but he, he just tried things for 30 days and he ended up living his whole, a whole couple of years, I believe, like doing all these little tasks and all these big tasks. Like he gave up sugar. He rode his bike to work. He, all these little things. And he found that the biggest things like giving up sugar was super difficult and not he couldn't actually do them. He couldn't go cold Turkey, just start these habits. He had to start, small with these tiny little habits and he found that the little ones actually built up and grew into these larger almost like cornerstone habits um but I, I love it i love that that's a that's exactly pretty much there's so so much evidence out there that we need to start with these small part build up to the big big pieces right yeah bj mm. fogg is a behavior scientist at stanford and he wrote the book, Tiny Habits, and he cracked the code on the formula for building tiny habits. I include that in my book. He actually endorsed my book as well. And I include his formula with all my clients and I've incorporated into my workshops and everything because it works. And it's all about incorporating a tiny habit into an already habit that you do in your day that you do every single day, whether it's brushing your teeth, taking a shower, putting the coffee pot on, whatever it is, attaching it to that habit. So you do it after that. So that habit you're already doing every day acts as a prompt or trigger for you to do the, the tiny habit that you committed to. And then after you do that tiny habit, you celebrate it by you know, saying awesome or clapping your hands or, you know, whatever you want to celebrate to reinforce the positive behavior. And it's such a small habit that you don't, you don't have to, or you don't need to make an excuse not to do it. Cause it's like a minute long or like 30 seconds. It's like so small that you don't need intrinsic motivation to complete it because everybody has 30 seconds or a minute, you know, they'll just do it instead of creating an excuse for it. Yeah. And I bet once these small habits solidify and they start to feel their energy go up and the fuel uh, 
increases or energy resources increase, they probably get addicted to let's get on to the next habit. And it starts to become a priority when they feel the, the return from their efforts. Absolutely. That's the whole thing is like, wow, I feel so great now. I want to do more. I want to feel more greatness, more energy, more clarity and creativity. That's how I get my clients kind of hooked is starting them small, not overwhelming them with a lot. And then they see it for themselves. It just unfolds and ripples throughout their life, the benefits. Oh, I love how you describe that. It ripples throughout their life. In your book, Naz, you talk about, uh, there's a section where you talk about the two dogs, the inner critic versus the inner coach. Can you tell us a little bit about this and any suggestions you have for our listeners to tap into the to the best dog of the two? <laughs> yeah, like two dogs inside of you competing for attention. You have an inner coach, the good dog, and an inner critic, the bad dog. So the inner coach represents positivity, you stress, which is a good stress, and a growth mindset, while the inner critic represents negativity, distress, and limiting beliefs. It's crucial to remember that the dog you feed determines the kind of life you lead. So when we choose to feed the good dog and view the world through the eyes of the inner coach, we feel more in control of our life and we view challenges as opportunities, not threats. So we harness the positive energy of acute stress and eustress and can avoid chronic stress. We see ourselves essentially as continually evolving and focus on improving ourselves when we are feeding uh, the good dog. But it all stems from being mindful in the first place to know which dog we are feeding and choosing to feed the good dog, the inner coach, so that the bad dog eventually starves to death when you no longer feed it. Yeah. And as a leadership coach, I can tell you like increasing self-confidence is one of the most frequent goals that clients come to me with. So I really appreciated this analogy and just creating the right mindset is what I take away from, from that description. Yeah. I love it. It's like a, a way of exhaust of, of destroying bad habits. And well, it's an easy way to think about slowly getting rid of a bad habit. I like that. It's a very easy analogy a very concrete analogy for us to kind of sink our teeth into. We all have, you know, habits, bad habits of behavior, but sometimes we forget that we can also have bad habits of mind, you know, mindset habits mm -hmm. that would be feeding that inner critic. So that's kind of the mindful sh shifting that mindset to have it up level and upgrade your mindset. And then what, so you're, uh, when you say mindset habits, you mean like uh, being grateful, practicing gratitude and or breathe, um, slowing down your mind, your like, whole breathing, taking a moment. Yeah. Pause, breathe, choose, having, you know, mindful self check-ins, listening to your inner coach rather than your inner critic, all the things that happen in your mind. We have, you know, mindset habits that we tend to, you know, follow um, and adopt but if we're not, when we are mindful, we're able to catch ourselves at, oh, we're listening to our inner critic and that's, you know, not a good mindset habit to, to continue uh, to practice. So let me like retract and, and now feed the inner coach versus the inner critic. Let me have 
a gratitude practice daily instead of focusing on the negative, focus on the positive, for example. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us how much time you personally dedicate to your own wellness and some of the key habits you have put in place on your own life to personally become the CEO of your well-being? I spend anywhere from 25 to 60 minutes per day on my morning routine. That's a non-negotiable, I call it RPM squared method, which is, and this is based on um, BJ's tiny habits, but I rise, pee, meditate for 20, followed by five to 40 minutes of rolling out my mat and exercising and doing like a combo of yoga and Pilates. And that just depends on, you know, when my first meeting is, but that first morning routine is non-negotiable for me. And then, like I said, I have, you know, mindful habits of mind and behavior. So like the mindful habits of mind, I do, I practice the pause, breathe, choose method. The title of my book, the practice enables you to take a pause from mind wandering, stress, frustration, any type of situation um, to pay attention and become present. It's like hitting the reset button and gaining a fresh perspective. So a simple pause followed by conscious breathing better equips you to make a mindful choice and take aligned action. And this is really effective. And I do, I, you know, I can apply this at any time, anywhere, many times a day, whenever I feel I need to just, you know, become present again and re-engage with the present moment. That is another, another one similar is like mindful self-check-ins where Throughout each day, I practice mindful self-check-ins to assess the state of my body and mind. So I often ask myself some rapid fire questions such as, am I breathing? Uh, how's my posture? Am I hunched over or sitting or standing tall? Am I frowning or clenching my jaw? Am I thirsty? Am I tired or energized? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What do I smell? What do I see? Just these rapid fire <laughs> questions. Um, to, to enable me to become fully present to my mental, emotional, physical state that I'm in, that awareness of the structure of my subjective experience is really another step to, toward making a better choice. So everything sets me up to make better choices because in the end of the day, we're kind of the um, result of all the choices we made, right? And so when we're mindful, we can make better choices. And then I also have the gratitude practice, which we briefly talked about, but I bring gratitude to the dinner table. I ask my husband every night what he's most grateful for in that day. And I share the same. Yeah. But the meditation though, like it really does make a big difference. I, I know I got into the practice of doing 15 minutes meditation with the a virtual meditation group every morning. And then life got busy, stopped doing it for three months. And I thought oh, I was just 15 minutes. What difference could it have made? And then I rejoined the group and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> look, that makes a huge difference to the whole day, just because you can tap into it later in the day when you're stressed out about something It's just still there that you can just yeah. pull, pull, pull yourself back into that being present and that mindful feeling. So I appreciate that, that comment. You also talk about Naz in your book, pause, breathe, choose about the importance of play and downtime and new experiences. Can you tell us why this is important for wellness and how do you encourage your clients to make time for play? 
Well, we were born to play. It's in our nature and we see it in children every day. I mean, play is how our creativity and joy come forward. And it's how we learn too. And, and play is fun and considered its own kind of recovery by essentially rebooting and re-energizing ourselves. And I also love play because it um, helps us see solutions to problems that have been looming over us because it's an opportunity for our brains to switch from a highly focused, goal-oriented and often pressurized mode to one that revels in the moment, free of pressure and expectations that promote our well-being, creativity and joy. And I encourage, you know, my clients to make time for play by blocking time in their calendar for it. When they allocate the time and uh, for play, it's typically a standing time, whether it's one to two times per week or ideally more if possible. But then they can't say they don't have the time because the time has already been accounted for. So we commit to a time, a standing time. They commit to it and we we schedule it together. Like I'm on, I'm I'm there with them while they take the time to put it in their calendar. And um, you know, once they experience the benefits of playtime, that becomes their motivation to keep that block time on their calendar moving forward. So it's not just me saying block time and do this. They realize, you know, how beneficial it is, how fun it is. And everyone has their own concept of what play is, right? You know, some people play with their kids. Some people go, you know, play guitar. Some people, whatever it is, it's, it's just about having fun in a different way that's not associated with a goal or outcome, you know, because um, we're always in this like highly focused goal-oriented mode at work and even outside of work. But when we're playing, we're more present, and we're in the moment and playing to have fun. So how would you how would you get a type A executive to to make more time for play? Yeah, unfortunately, every day is a little bit too much to ask for for busy executives. So that's why I say like one to two times per week, if that even starting just once a week, and that could be on a weekend, you know, but for example, Steve incorporated play all the time in his workday. He'd go to Johnny Ives' office and play with the Apple prototypes. That was his play. He was passionate about the Apple products. So play can happen at work too. It doesn't have to happen outside of work. And those are mostly with very passionate entrepreneurs or leaders who absolutely love what they do. And so they're playing. Work isn't considered work. It's, it's actually play and fun. So there's different types of play. So for those people, they're already doing it, right? Mm -hmm. They're already so passionate about their work that it, it is their play and fun time. Um, but even for them, I would suggest that they take it outside of work, do, you know, have some fun with friends, family, you know, the kids, if they have any kids, but having different sorts of play, a diversity of play. So it's not just work-related. Naz, can you tell us a little bit about how you would suggest a company approach a corporate wellness assessment? I know this is something you offer through your firm, but you know, if a company's never done one, what, what does that mean and what type of things would it measure? Yeah, so if a company's never done one, I would, you know, highly encourage them to hire an outside vendor, such as you know, Prana Naz or someone else, because they have the experience to do it. But if they want to try for themselves, um, they could conduct employee surveys to evaluate the personal 
wellness interests and needs of employees as a starting point and, you know, conduct a health risk assessment as well to assess the health of the workforce that will develop, you know, like determine which programs and types of programs to implement. And, you know, just, it's all about conducting an organizational assessment to, to determine which types of wellness programs to offer. Cause every company is different from, you know, what their goals are, what wellness even means to them, what their demographics are, what their company culture are. So it's really important to not assume that what one wor workplace wellness program for one company that is successful will be successful for your company. So that's why it's really important to do a corporate wellness assessment to customize it for the needs and goals of your specific organization. So you could really evaluate, you know, your employees' interests, needs, health risks, all of that to take into account before implementing an actual program that's going to be effective. And would it include things like the, the obvious are physical activity, nutrition, but would it, it potentially include things like incorporating time for play and other aspects of wellness? That's where a holistic approach comes in, where my programs are unique to most wellness programs, because a lot of these programs are more siloed around nutrition and fitness, for example, but like Prananas offers a very holistic broad range where, because we know that all areas of your life are interconnected and you need to look at yourself as a whole, not just one, you know, silo a program to one area of your life. And that's why I subtitled my book, become the CEO of your well-being, because well-being is so encompassing of it all. So I would have to say, I, I, I haven't heard of that in other companies to incorporate play, for example, that's something I do my company does. Um, but it would be great if more companies do incorporate this holistic approach because it's really effective. And I know this firsthand through experience. Must ask, what inspired you to write Pause, Breathe, Choose, you know, become the CEO of your well-being? Pause, Breathe, Choose was inspired and dedicated to Steve Jobs. He appeared in a vivid, very vivid dream on the night of February 14th, 2014. It was more than two years after he had passed. And simply and clearly, the way Steve always spoke to me in life, in my dream, he told me that I should write a book, a book about how my first job and working for him impacted the rest of my life and career. And I've had countless lucid dreams, I mean, nightly, that I was able to recall afterward. However, I've only seen people's faces in my dreams only three times. Each time it was the face of someone very dear to me who had recently passed away. So when Steve appeared as that third person, that third face that I actually saw very vividly, I took his prophetic words seriously and I soon began to write. That That's pretty, that's pretty cool, but I gotta ask, Though, what type of boss was he to work for? Was he a real driver? Like you, you see all these videos, he had passion. Like what was he really like as a boss? I mean, he was definitely intense. And in my opinion, with good reason, because most visionaries are intense. I mean, he was an iconic visionary, laser focused and very ambitious. So I kind of, I mean, that kind of goes, goes with what that is. I mean, he's, he was highly, he demanded excellence 
um, which has always been evident in the Apple brand and products. But, um, you know, I just, I didn't treat Steve as some like big high level CEO or celebrity that some people think he or was, um, which is why I think, you know, he chose to hire me because I, I just felt like he was any other person, although an iconic visionary. Um, but we were, you know, we worked well together, although he was intense. Um, I didn't have the experiences that some other people did that, you know, would be fired on the spot or, you know, you'd be yelled at and kind of um, all those kind of horror stories you, some people have heard. I didn't uh, experience that firsthand. I might have seen a little bit of it, but I did not experience it firsthand. Where can our listeners go to learn more about your company, NAS, uh, your company, Prana NAS, and your, your next projects? Listeners can find out more about my corporate wellness programs and coaching at prananas.com. You can also find out more about me and my book at nasbeheshti.com. I'm also on social media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Clubhouse as Nas Beheshti, and on Facebook as Nas Beheshti Speaker. We'll make sure we have all that in the show notes as well. So everything you've learned from your mentors has led you in this direction. And it's fantastic. Thank you for being a platform for others to learn from. Thank you so much. And that wraps another episode of the Inspired Leadership Podcast. My name is Susan Power and my co-host, Tyler Bailey, we thank you for your support for this cast. We encourage you to share it with a friend. If you like it, give it a like. Maybe you'll encourage a friend or family member to carve out some time for their own well-being. Until next time, 